And hello, everybody. Today, I have part two with Patrick Reasonover. He is the partner. He's partner over at Just Add Firewater. Uh, go check them out at justaddfirewater.com. And he's also co-founder and uh, president, I believe it is, right, at uh, Taliesin Nexus, which is where we met. I'm not going to go into his bio. We talked about it last time. Go check out our last conversation together. Today, we're actually going to talk about more about art and culture, but we're really going to talk about the Odyssey and the Iliad. Now, the Odyssey and the Iliad, if you've been following this podcast for a while, you know that this is it for me. This is what started it all. You know my whole story, uh, so I won't go into it too much. But, um, you know, there's, I know that Patrick also has, I think, a passion and a love for literature, and it's very hard to have a serious passion for literature and know nothing about the Odyssey and the Iliad. So, Patrick, before we started, you were telling me about a book, and I thought that would be a good way to start this whole thing, is for you to tell me more about this book you were talking about that has kind of said some interesting thing about consciousness in the Iliad and the Odyssey. So what was the book? Yeah, so the book is The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind by Julian Jaynes, which is a book that was, you know, came out and was popular in the 70s. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things interesting about it is, uh, yeah, I've talked to some of my professors from school who were really, like, interested in it, but then there wasn't really, like, sort of a lot of follow-up scholarship. Yeah. Because uh, <clears throat> I, I only read it this year. And then I read... Uh, Both of them or, or just one? Uh, just just the first, just the one book. The, the Iliad? Uh, the, no, 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 no. The, uh, oh, Jane, uh, got the it. Origin of Consciousness Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. And, got it. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that his theories or this book like hasn't really... There wasn't really a lot of scholarly criticism on it is because it's really super multidisciplinary. You know, the Danes was the son of a preacher who was, you know, who was much older than his mother. So he, you know, never really knew him. But he sort of had a library of his father's lectures um, or, or sermons. And then he was classically trained in Greek and Latin. Um, but he was a psychologist and came up in the era when they're doing testing, you know, like animal consciousness and, you know, for, you know, using tools to like, you know, um, what is it? Is it an encephalogram when they take a picture of your brain? Uh, and, uh, yeah, I don't know what that's called, but and, sounds cool. I like it. So, so anyway, James basically combines all of these fields, yeah. you know, in this theory. And I think there's not really a lot of scholarship on it because, uh, you know, our academia is not really built seemingly to kind of like really investigate multidisciplinary works like that. You know, it's so spiraled off into like tiny little pieces. So if you're, you know, uh, they're very specialized. Yeah, if you're a laboratory or clinical psychologist, you probably don't know that much about the Iliad and the Odyssey. Maybe <laughs> you know, yeah. at least not from a point to be able to, like think about it scientifically. And so, uh, yeah. But anyway, that's uh, belaboring the point here. Anyway, James contends that we were not actually we had no self-reflective consciousness until about like three thousand years ago. And he takes uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey and he does a literary analysis on it. And he shows that, um, you know, in the Iliad, there's in the Greek, uh, when Achilles is, you know, getting upset, you know, what Agamemnon has done by taking Rhesus. And I'm going to probably butcher all those names. Uh, but anyway, uh, he, uh, 
he says that like it's not his brain. He doesn't have a term for ah. It's like his stomach, uh, you know, was filled with emotion, you know, and his and his lungs beat, you know. So uh, for Jane's is whenever they're using these terms that later become associated with just consciousness, they begin in like the lungs and the stomach, you know, or like the heart. And uh, and people didn't really they didn't use like pronouns. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, going back even to like, um, I think, uh, what's that classical, um, uh, work, the earliest one, uh, from Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh. It's like, he's like, I Gilgamesh or in his AI, he's like Gilgamesh, king of Kings, you know, ruler yeah. of the world e- every single time, you know, cause there's no like reflective, ah, hmm. and, uh, yeah. So you see in the Iliad, this world where it's a it's a Bronze Age world, uh, and right before the Bronze Age collapse, maybe even kind of part of the Bronze Age collapse, and these characters are almost, according to him, they have language, they have math, they have all these different things in art, but they don't have a reflective consciousness, and it's only really like with the Odyssey and like Odysseus himself is almost like a cult, you know, archetype character of the conscious man. You know, because he's the crafty Odysseus. You know, he thinks, he reflects, he comes up with a plan. Uh, You know, and this uh, is a very interesting implication for time. You know, because if you don't, if you can't, if you don't have an internal reflective eye, you can't think about the past and reflect upon it. You can't think about the future. You just live in the present, you know, kind of like an animal. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, well, I'm trying uh, to I'm trying to understand and unpack like so. There's certain terminology that I think he's using that I'm not super familiar with and understanding. I think like so. And so the other problem is that I've read Iliad and Odyssey a lot, and they definitely use I in there. But this is translations of translations, so I don't know how ancient Greek works. That'd be interesting for a language professor. So I, I imagine this guy is doing this in ancient Greek where he's reading this and there's not an eye. Yeah, I there know that's eyes in there. There are eyes in there, but there is a distinction, you know, between like an eye and a me. You know, like a me is like a sort of a projection of yourself out into the world, looking at yourself as a thing. Whereas like an eye is literally an eye also at that time. I don't think it like came to mean, you know, uh, your inner reflective self. It meant more than that. You know, and it only kind of hones in on meaning your inner reflective self later, like through the text. You sort of start seeing it happen. And then it through, you know, Odysseus, which is really the Odyssey is a telling of what happened after the Bronze Age collapse. And then after the Bronze Age collapse, uh, everything is totally different. There's like chaos. But out of it comes conscious man, according to James. According to James. Uh, and so, and the Odyssey, the Iliad, and the Odyssey, and this are like kind of a map to that, uh, which is which is a pretty cool and different way of looking at the two texts. Just to think about, like, you know, how is how in your reading of it, Kirk? How do Odysseus and Achilles differ? Well, I think that Achilles is the more uh, generally the man of action, and Odysseus is the thinker. He has what the Greeks called Matisse. He's always, and Matisse was their way of, you know, integrating a whole bunch of different attributes into a, 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 
like Matisse was what made triremes. It was cutting like it's it's the innovation, it's the the productiveness, but it's also creativity. It also includes lying, right? Like lying is a big part of what Odysseus does. He lies all the time in that story, and there's but there's reasons for lies, and there's layers to the lies, and it's a kind of con, like a conscious lie that he's testing you out, and you know he's he's trying to make sure. But in the story, so there's the one of the issues is that there's two there's somewhat two different odysseuses so there's the odysseus and the iliad and the odysseus and the odyssey right and the odysseus and the odyssey um is probably like to in in our era is probably the more prominent one although historically achilles was always the more prominent one or like i think it goes up and down like i remember i was reading this benjamin franklin uh uh Biography. I can't remember who did it. It was like the uh, the new big one that came out a couple of years ago about mm-hmm. Benjamin Franklin, and they were talking about how Benjamin Franklin ebbs and flows in terms of how popular he is. Um, you know, de- depending on what's going on. Sometimes people hate him, think he's like a waste of time, and, and this is you know in the last couple of hundred years, right. and that definitely happened with Achilles. Um, so, I mean, the reason I was like, I'm, I'm thinking about what you're saying is something is resonating. I think some, some of it, I'm a little confused about what he's saying. So one of the things that was really, it's interesting. And this is kind of, I think what goes into the role of art and what art does is that the Greeks did a lot of things that people don't understand, I think, in terms of what you're talking about. So for instance, the Greeks were the first to have conceptual math, right? So they, they were able to, like um now this is something that's kind of vague for me and I, i'm not a mathematician i've taken courses on it and i remember sticking on this and trying to understand it but like they were the ones who would come up with stuff like algebra so people like egyptians could come up with the um you know area of a a crop place but Egypt, uh, greeks could come up with the at uh, any area right by by doing conceptual right. math right they came up with the formula for all areas that you could ever come up with and that's right. a whole new way of thinking it's the same thing with the sculptures so if you look at egyptian sculpture and all sculpture pre pre-greek it's basically just i can't remember the name for it but it's like you know stiff man he's his head is slightly up i think he's he has one hand in front of him one foot in front of the other but he's very stout like there's no movement there's no nothing to him it's very rigid and greeks broke free of that and you know like they put movement like discus thrower where they're trying to capture like this is what movement looks like and they're trying to get the perfect moment and in literature you know, they invented drama. They, they basically invent, I mean, there was a literature before them, but the kind of structure and use of language that, and, and particularly putting it in writing was the big thing, of course. That was all very different. Now, I think, so from what I understand about language and there, there's a lot of contentious views about language and what this guy that you're talking about, was it Jane something? Jane's. Jane's yeah. what, what it's I mean what it what it was interesting is it sounds like he's talking about I mean it's it's really difficult I'm trying cuz he's using lingo that I'm or you you're using lingo from him that I'm not super familiar with so maybe you'll have to help me out a little bit but it seems like he's um he's talking about the kind of what happens when you invent language and what that does to a mind so yeah. there's a big shift in, in human civilization, of course, when you have language that you could write down. Like it's good for your memory. So you, 
like you don't have to do all these rigmarole tricks that to to remember something you can actually write it down right and then pass it on and then right. that means people are actually training their minds based on the mind of somebody hundreds of years ago you know the iliad is written in 800 bc about 1100 bc and we're reading it today in 2100 ad 21 21 2000 where, where the hell are we yeah. <laughs> in time so I don't know if I can formulate what this guy James is saying, though. He's saying. Let me give you another piece of it. Yeah, go ahead. Let's 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 keep going. So um, anyway, so James says that uh, I can't. I don't. This is one of the things that we're at the top. We're talking about like, oh, well, where is the scholarship on this? Uh, You know, to like verify these things. But he, uh, you know, he basically was a. Uh, you know, reading or a part of these studies on epileptics and schizophrenics. Okay. And he would say that they essentially, they would have like a, a part of their brain, like they're like not your language center, but the thing that would be opposite your language center, because that's a part that's not deduped in the brain. Okay. You know, like for the most part, our brain is like, you know, duped processes. Um, <clears throat> so that's why he's saying like the, he calls his book, the breakdown of the bicameral mind. So there's two hemispheres that yeah. are not, really connected with an internal consciousness. And so he contends that, uh, you know, when they've hooked electrodes up to like epileptics or, you know, observe the brains of the schizophrenics, that they're hearing an internal voice that is located where that, you know, on the other side of where you're like left, you're like, I mean, it varies if you're right-handed or left-handed, but you know, if you're right-handed, it's on the left, then your lower right lobe that would be like sort of the analogous piece of it. It doesn't really kind of do anything exactly, but he he thinks that it used to. And what it used to do is people would literally hear voices, like hear the voice of the God or hear the voice of the lawgiver, you know, in their head. And it sort of told them what to do, you know, almost like you would imagine, like we have a, we have conscious minds and your imagination is constantly throwing you ideas and stuff. Right. You know, but imagine if it was like words that you heard in your head, you know, as that the beginning of language and then you're hearing it down. Hold on. Hold on. So how is that not a, how is that different than just an inner monologue that we have going on all day, every day, all of us as humans? Well, for him, it would, it sounds like the voice of someone else. Like, we like it have literally a, sounds like someone else's voice, you're saying? Yeah, like it would be configured as like your father or your mother or the God voice. It's like, you know, how schizophrenic is like someone's talking to me in my head, you know? Yeah. So his notion is it's something super incredibly present in, the, in your mind. And, uh, and that with the Bronze Age collapse, uh, they stop hearing it. They just because they're constantly becoming conscious, which is also the birth of writing, as you're saying, once they started writing the language down, it was then time is created somehow. Right. You can walk away from the writing and it's still there. You know, it's not just something that's like in your head or that the poets sing. And so when you have these poets telling these stories of, uh, you know, composing these stories, like in the Iliad, you have almost just like people going into a trance like state, you know, Mm -hmm. and just uttering something that they heard, you know, over time. And then when you think of the people who are hearing it, that's, that's literally it for them. You know, like this is the entire world, you know, right here. 
that's the only because they weren't literate, you know, so they couldn't like read tons of books and, you know, or even think about language as something that gives you that distance that you could read and walk away with. It was something very present and immediate and like metaphysical, you know, and that's like how what poetry really is. It's metaphysical. Then you have like a novel. Well, that's more like, you know, in the land of epistemology. You know, it's like a theories of knowledge and how do you know, because you get the inner monologue of the character, um, hmm. you know, and whereas a play is kind of like our television show or something is like about ethics, you know, so the dramas, you know, are like generally about ethical or social political questions that, you know, the Greeks had, you know, it's about like should, you know, so they didn't even really have a lot of novels, you know, like now we're all novels, right? Because we're so removed from that metaphysics that you experience like as a child as a child you're learning language the world is metaphysical to what, you. so what do you mean by metaphysics i think metaphysics, I might- uh, like you know like um just like uh in in terms of like uh philosophy it would be like uh you know like the early philosophers like the world is fire you know or thales the world is water yeah you know so like just like imagine it like it's something you think like so you're saying know, like a universal substance <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I'm just gonna, the, the, you know, and then, and then you, you're using that metaphor to yeah. kind of drive your like vision of like everything, you know, like a child does, you know, like, Oh, like you have a childlike consciousness. Yeah. But then once you reach the point where you start having reflective thought, you know, you somewhat lose touch with that like poetry of the child that is like so present, you know, and the ancients were like that their whole lives. You know, um, at least, you know, in this in this view, which I thought which I thought was like pretty profound. You know, when you yeah. come to think about how the Iliad was composed and how the Odyssey was composed. You mean orally? Yeah, well, they were both composed orally, but co- but the Odyssey reads more like a novel in a sense. Right. It, it kind of is more. It's It's not about like it's about one man. You know, it's about one man who is and his wife and they're mutually both overcoming obstacles to like, you know, be united in the end. Uh, So very base of Western civilization. The Iliad, however, opens up in the middle of the thing, ends before the war is even done. And there's all these characters, tons of characters and there's gods and the gods are acting and they're talking like they're people. And uh, and it's more of like this giant world tell, you know, that just this happens and that happens and this happens and that happens. And and not so much just like that story of the one man going on a, on a hero's journey like uh, Odysseus. OK, so, I mean, that's interesting. So I I would say both of them are like that, though. It's like both of them are about a singular person. The, the Odyssey, and, and I think both of them occupy a certain amount of time, similar amount of time in it. So Odysseus, like Telemachus is in the first four chapters of the Odyssey and you don't even hear Odysseus. And when you hear of Odysseus, you know, he's, um, he's already been on the island with Circe for, I think nine years or something like that, or, or 10 years. And he's, right. he finally, Athena gets, uh, is it Athena? I think it's Athena. Who, she intercedes. What is that? 
she intercedes uh, for him. Yeah, for- and and basically goes to Zeus and, t- but, t- so I I I I see what you're saying about time, but I think it applies to both of them that time in the story plays an interesting part in the story itself, right? So like it's it's not a, a it's not a singular narrative within Odyssey because there's a lot of um, flashbacks. So flashbacks play a major role in that story because it's basically uh, Odysseus or uh, it's Agamemnon telling Telemachus the story of his father and what happened to him on these journeys. This is what I know. And then Telemachus is basically adding up the stories of, hey, this is what I found out from Agamemnon. And then, then you have Odysseus landing on that island the one that he has to convince them. That's where he le- ends up naked uh, after everyone cra- You know, everyone died. He ends up naked on this one island, and you know he has to cover himself. And then there's this you know princess, and he has to kind of convince her to take him into town. But he he does he makes a lie about who he is because he's not ready to reveal it and all that stuff. And it's um and then he tells his story there, and then he acts like a bard. You know, so he's telling the story of like when he ate the or when his men ate the 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 uh the the sun god's Otis. cattle or the cattle yeah yeah cattle the sun god and so i th- i think you know one of the inventions that so this is where i'm having contentious un- like i'm not understanding what this guy is talking about um yeah. in terms of what you're saying here cuz i think we both agree that there's intense amount of something creative something innovative that's changing civilization and changing the way the mind works so Mm -hmm. i i talk about this all the time on the podcast the reason i tell people to read poetry uh i think i might have mentioned this last time but like one example i'm using now is the first line of keats's ode on a grecian urn thou unravished bride of quietness and which at first reading like each of those words individually makes se- doesn't makes a little bit of sense but you don't know what he's talking about but when you bring it, break it down you actually find and you th- like think about it you actually think you know you understand that it means you uh earn this grecian urn he's looking at this beautiful work of greek art you are speaking loudly to me because it's a bride of quietness it's unravished she hasn't had sex with the quietness which is the opposite my the point i'm trying to make is that when you do that activity you actually are changing the synapses of your mind your brain changes its shape and you become you know it's it's like why neurologists recommend doing puzzles and reading poetry is because it actually keeps your your mind strong it's like weightlifting for your mind to yeah. do that kind it, it takes a lot of work like you got to think about each word and it's a puzzle that you're bringing out for the first time that happens in writing with the Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, which is why it was the canon for all of ancient Greco-Roman times. Like that was the canon. Everybody read it. And that shaped the whole mind of the, the people there. And it was new. So I understand where he's, this guy's coming from where he's saying there's something profound happening, um, you know, to the mind at this era in history, just like the breaking free of the, you know, um, like the conceptual math, the breaking free of sculpture, which is helps you with perspective, right? Like they, they got into perspective. And this is my, my whole theory that art precedes every achievement in human existence. Like you don't get, 
the the um, scientific revolution without the perspective revolution in painting. You have to have perspective in painting and in literature for people to even get outside of themselves enough to think about how do the motions of the earth work and things like that. Like there's, and and I'm not the only one who said things like that. Like I'm not, I know very little about this stuff. I'm an amateur at best, but the um, so I understand what he's saying from from that perspective. Something profound. The thing that really I'm, I'm like, I don't know, is the, the voice thing. So like, I, I hear voices in my head all the time. So here's what, here's what I wonder if he doesn't understand this or maybe he does understand it. And this is, he's trying to make this clear is the voice, like the stuff that's going in your head is not you. Even if it's in your voice, it's words from your parents, from television, from movies, from books that you picked up. Like you may think that it's you, but it's actually, uh, like the way I've heard it, the way most people think in the, the monologue in their head is what, uh, one, person uh, richard mitchell linguist said was sloganistic thinking and it's why so many people agree with each other it's because they all have the same you know ticker tape newsreel going on in their head it said their voice so they think i have thought it up and i'm a genius but actually it's a high level intellectual you know they get it in their sitcoms they get it in their music like that's why everyone acts the same and what the alien and the, and the odyssey did that I think this guy James is grappling with is it unified a culture, right? Like that's what art does. Art unifies people. Like the, for instance, the Grimm brothers, they were actually linguists that went around, you know, talking to, well, they sent their students to talk to, um, you know, old ladies to get the, the tales from it. But what they did was they wanted to unify Germany. This is before Germany was a unified state. So when you do that, of course, you're going to have one voice for everybody. That's what, that's the power of art. That's the, and especially of conceptual art like literature. So in that sense, there was one voice in people's head, but that was the, that was the Iliad and the Odyssey. It was Homer's voice. And it's the most powerful voice in the history of the world for that reason. <clears throat> yes. Uh, well, you know, it, it's a long, substantial book. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't understand. Points that, <laughs> you know, he, he addresses, um, you know, uh, that we can, can keep going into. But uh, the uh, the I think that what it, you said something that really like uh, jived in my mind. So uh, I like also uh, the philosopher Jim Baptista Vico, uh, I who, who I studied uh uh, in school and he, he was kind of, uh, he was the first, uh, like philosopher of history. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah. And, uh, it's like Marx references him, you know, hey, uh, hey, philosopher kind of, of history. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. The first philosopher to be, to then contend with a philosophy of history. Interesting. Um, yeah, and so uh, what he sort of does is he also looks at this beginning of language. So you think about like the origin of language. So you have something like these external concepts, externalized concepts. So uh, which is like very much, you know, is metaphor essentially is yeah. what the poets trek in. And so you have, let's say, like uh, Achilles. Well, Achilles is courage, and mm -hmm. so whenever they didn't have internal reflective mind space to identify courage. Cause you start thinking about well, what is courage, you know, then, wow, that's like a lot of things, you know, you have to have a whole bunch of words to be able to even isolate yes. something like courage. Yeah. And so, um, so Achilles is courage. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he's out there, you know, or they said that, or that man is possessed with Achilles, you know, mm-hmm. or Achilles is possessing that man, the God or whatever is possessing that man, you know, and only later can we separate these things out and have like individualized concepts that are just internal for which essentially there is no referent. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, if this is the way language comes about, you know, where basically we begin with everything is an externalization of consciousness then, you know, it makes then the whole of the history of religion kind of makes sense in that regard, where you're just externalizing your own experience out there. And that's like all the early concepts. But then once you build up enough, you then have a mind space to then begin to reflect upon the words themselves. Yes. And um, yeah. And so um, I well, you also need enough from other cultures because you need to be able to compare and contrast. Right. Yeah, right. And so that's why it happened in Greece, as they were traitors. And but the other thing, the other cultures thing at this point, to me, I just wonder, like, you know, how microscopic is it? You know, because they're like all Greeks, but you have, you know, um, Achilles is from where I can't recall. I think he was from Thrace. And no, then I don't think so. I, th- I can't remember where he's from, but I don't think it was Thrace. He wasn't a Thracian. I could be wrong, but I they, so they, there wasn't a unified Greece at this time they were a whole right. bunch of tribes and yeah, he was and so um tribes interacted he was the king of the myrmidons maybe ithaca or, or is that odysseus that's odysseus odysseus is ithaca, ithaca yeah um, um yeah but you have um how do i not uh, know this <laughs> I'm yeah i mean i was i was in greece uh last Ooh. year and so i went to like you know where agamemnon was uh, you know was and you can actually look out you know from um uh mykonos and see like uh i think that's the name of it and you because uh, it was the Mike Mycenaean. Mycenaean. Yeah, my, he was the Mycenaean king. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah them, and then, uh, but then uh, Menelaus was from Sparta, which is mm-hmm. uh, which is way away, you know? Yeah. I mean, it took me, I was like, I don't know, it's like two hours in a car, but I mean, yeah. but for them, away, for them <laughs> you know? yeah, for sure. So, yeah, you then you have these little city-states, and then they start communicating with each other, and they're different and unique, and they're pluralist. And then, yeah, that starts happening and affecting the language. Uh, yes. Yeah. It's, uh, these, these books, like, in the sense, like, where, you know, with James or the origin of consciousness, you're hearing, uh, uh, you're hearing your voice, like, you almost like you, you get this voice, but it's not one voice. It's, it's, uh, it's your inner voice. And it may, you may ascribe people to it. You know, like the father or the God or the whatever, but it breaks down and you can't hear it anymore. Uh, but bringing this back to what you said, we almost Vico says that there's an arc to history and we start as barbarians and we end as barbarians in the barbarism of reflection where, you know, we can look in the mirror, but we we rebarbarize ourselves. And uh, what you said there just struck me because it's like. Yes, we used to hear the voice, but then we got consciousness and we could reflect, which then leads to wisdom and the cultural flowering. But then what happens is we almost just rebarbarize by everybody hearing the same voice, even like consciously, and then we stop reflecting. And so when you're talking about people saying that people should read Keats, like you're saying like – you know, reflect, <laughs> you know, reflect upon yourself, <laughs> learn who you are. <laughs> That's interesting. So can, can you give me an example of what you mean by rebarbarism now? Rebarbar, like. Oh, yeah. So, rebarbarism. And, and what do you mean? So 
barbarianism, it, like that is us as brutal savages with loincloths and clubs and no language and no writing and no music and art. Is that what you mean by by barbarism? Yeah. Well, yes. Like as in us as children, the children of man, the ancients, you know, they're barbarized compared to us, right? Because they would, you know, butcher each other and uh, have sacrifice and, you know, so they don't, they don't have like ethics or society or the polis, you know, they're just a barbarians. And so, um, uh, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Aristotle means just simply other, you know, I don't know that there's a pejorative well, other than the fact that the Greeks think they're better than everybody. But like uh, and for Vico, who's much later, like pre, uh, you know, kind of right, right before Descartes. Okay. And he, um, you know, what he means by rebarbarize is that, you know, the barbarian, you know, doesn't so much really lie to you. Right. Uh, he's just going to kill you. Or is just going to trade with you or do whatever he wants because he lives in the present and he doesn't, you know, he's like a, he doesn't really reflect, you know, he doesn't come up with like complex plans and things and conceptual math. But then once we come up with the conceptual math and we have consciousness, like you reflect it all, well, then suddenly, you know, you have a philosophy, you know, literally, like you know, the love of wisdom and the study of these things. But then over time, Vico charts this thing where uh, he says Socrates invents the question. I mean, obviously, people ask questions before, but just as a like Achilles is courage, Socrates is the question inventor. And so he uh, an external referent. So Socrates invents the question. Well, now people can question. Well, then once you can question, you're like, okay, well, now I know I'm going to die. So what's the best life? And then you reflect. And then that leads to ethics, because, you know, animals, we're the only creatures that know we're going to die. And so then we're the only creatures who can then have ethics, you know, so then you have ethics and you have this flowering. Um, and so you're asking, what does it mean to be human? Well, then at some point, philosophy starts asking, what does it mean to ask questions? Mm -hmm. And this is Kant, uh, you know, and others like when they're and Descartes, starting with Descartes, you know, that what does it mean to ask questions? And then they get farther and farther away and just forget about man whatsoever. You know, because, hey, if we can't know anything, then you can't ask about something like what is courage? It doesn't make any sense, you know. And then yeah. so philosophy follows this course and uh, he thinks that society in turn does as well. And then so, you know, you're all these traditions and ethics and institutions that we have over time are just sort of seen as valueless. And we essentially rebarbarize. That's interesting. I mean, I definitely see the point where we start off by asking questions in philosophy. Then over time, we get farther and farther away as people at, try to add their two cents to the conversation about questions. And then they abstract farther and farther away. And then they're basically just building clouds in the sky and they don't care about the practical effects of it at all. They've separated, you know, theory and practice, which is right. something the Greeks would never have done, even contemplated doing that was so integrated. You know, theory is like, if, if it's theoretically good, it's practically good. Like right. the, the idea, they would never say something like it's good in theory, but not in practice. Like that would make no sense to them. <laughs> Everything they do is like, it comes out of, um, the, the like the practice and you, right. you start with the world around you and the facts and the world that you have in the physical senses and you abstract you know you you bring out a theory or a principle from that uh, yeah. just like the theory of justice or something for instance comes from you know this is what the um, um, I can't remember which which 
Plato platonic story this was where Socrates is sitting on the steps and he's waiting for his trial. It's one of the more famous ones. I can't remember what it's called. It's not the Gorgias. And then this guy, this this young man comes up. He's going to go to court. He's going to take his father to court. And they're talking about justice. And they, and Socrates is just asking questions about, well, how do you know that that's just? Like, should you tell on your father? Or is it the right situation? Like, and, and how do you know that they're going to come to the right circumstance and so on? And they go back and forth about what is justice? How do you know when justice is actually meted and how do you know you, someone got their just dessert and what's the point of that anyway? And things like that. He's starting to, like you said, ask these questions, but it's all very practical. It's, it's trying to say like what this guy should do about his father. Right. right. Um, and it's not like, you know, where it's today, it's this weird trolley cart, you know, lifeboat scenario that never fucking happens in real life. And that's the most practical that they can do like today. The most right. practical they could do is something that nobody's ever going to have to worry about like in a million years, like a, you know, a trolley cart going down the stream and, you know, going down the train tracks and there's to the left. If they pull the lever, cause it's out, you know, the brakes are out. If they pull the lever, it'll go right and it'll kill one person. If it goes left, it kills five, right. you know, it's like that, like who's ever going to be in that situation? <laughs> like that's completely useless. Yeah. But Socrates is talking about an actual situation and that, that's, almost always as far as i from what i've read the case with platonic dialogues um and socrates and what he did was asking those questions so i see that there is um you know this idea of this arc going from asking questions to not and yeah so i mean that's that's interesting i i think there is um I mean, it's, but it does seem like he's missing things like what about the dark ages like why do we go backwards so much Oh, how yes. does something like that happen, right? So Vico uh, calls it the Corso and the Recorso, and he says it, it uh, you know, varies by civilization. So um, it's basically what happened is, uh, in his mind, is the Greeks go to the Romans, and then the Romans were entered the barbarism of reflection and collapsed. And then we went into the Dark Ages, which was a re-barbarization. And okay. then, you know, with the Christian religion, you know, whereas before it was the pagan, you know, uh, sort of Mediterranean religion. But then we rebarbarized into the Christian mythology uh, religion in the Dark Ages. And then in the Renaissance, you have, again, the classics discovered and people start asking questions and a flowering of art and knowledge, you know, that then comes to the Enlightenment um, which is, again, a flowering of knowledge. However, it is a move into um, thinking about thinking. And yeah. so, uh, you know, he uh, he says he calls them like I think he calls philosophers the pallbearers of civilization because it's really awesome when they arrive. But you know what happens next. <laughs> and so, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, he obviously uh, I think the 1600s, so he wouldn't have uh, had too much of a thought about America. But. You know, uh, in in a similar way, perhaps he would have said, "Oh, well, Greek civilization would have similarly collapsed, but you know, it was it was merged in with a younger civilization of Rome." And so, in some ways, you have like this Enlightenment Europe, but America, you know, the Constitution, the Declaration, the the founding fathers, they're very much more like the Greeks. You know, yes. they're driven by the practical and like yeah. what 
you know, Americans like that was the whole thing. America's practical philosopher of practicalism. But uh, they, uh, yeah. So in some ways, you know, we could probably say, well, you merged with a more earlier civilization, uh, and it just is going to take a little bit longer for us to collapse. But I don't know. When you look around today, unless somehow there's some other civilization we're merging with, I definitely feel like we are in the barbarism of reflection. <laughs> well. I mean, so this is where it gets complicated, right? Because I, I, I always wonder in reading, you know, historical figures and just anything about history is there, there's always this sense that the people around me are dumb, brutish, never reflect, never do, they're peasants. They don't like that. And, and it's, I think that's how it's easy to feel that way today too, where most people choose not to reflect. They choose to be passive. They choose not to read poetry, not to read literature, not to, to think just to kind of do what they do, what they do. So, you know, dumb driven cattle is what um, I think it's a long fellow. Po- it's in a long fellow poem. Don't, don't be the, um, I think it's Longfellow, you know, don't be dumb driven cattle or something like that. And I think historically and, you know, every, every thinker who, to whatever degree they're a thinker, believes that about everybody around them all the time throughout history. So I find that an interesting thing because it's something I'm always wondering about is one, I think there's definitely truth to it. Of course, like it's, it's, there's truth to that. Um, but, you know, we're thinking about like the, this mass civilization. Overall, we're doing pretty good, right? Like there's a lot of stored knowledge. And, you know, for the first time ever, people have the ability to easily rise out of that. And, you know, because of technology, where in the, in the past they haven't, I suspect that it's true that most people are pretty damn passive about thinking and life in general. But that there's more people doing it than, you know, thinking than has ever been possible and, and ever was. And that's why we have such a great society. I think. Yes. You know? um, yeah, there's definitely I know exactly what you mean. There's there's a lot of works that when they have like a kind of arc of history, it starts out not so good, gets awesome. But then somehow today we're in like, <laughs> you know, collapse. Yeah. Um, and there's also there's kind of also not like an elitism to that. I think the thing that attracts me to Vico, you know, just because, uh, you know, I didn't grow up and wasn't uh, raised in some sort of elitist kind of or even academic, uh, you know, background. And so, uh, yeah. And so when, uh, you know, I'm in, I think like, the, well, to, to cut straight to the chase, um, it's really the intellectuals that are the problem. You know, yeah. so it's not like, I agree uh, with that. <laughs> you know, the. You know, it's the dumb cattle out there. Like regular people are just dumb cattle. You know, that's not the case. You know, regular people are very practical, you know, in, in what they're doing. Uh, but unfortunately are influenced, you know, by the intellectuals, you know, in the form of like art and movies and film and philosophy. And so, you know, Vico is uh, probably not so super concerned about, you know, the farmers or the, you know, bourgeois traders and what they think about things. He's concerned about the philosophers and the academics because he knows that when they start getting up there doing this business of thinking about nothing, uh, it ultimately has an effect. 
you know, mm-hmm. on the leaders of the country and, you know, and whatever. And so that's why it's, uh, it's in some ways like an anti-elitist position because you're sort of looking at these elites and thinking, you know, in the same way, perhaps how, uh, you know, Plato looked at like forms of government and said, uh, you know, oh, well, a democracy like will naturally de- degenerate into tyranny, you know, over time. That's just its nature. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, an aristocratic government will naturally gravitate into a plutocratic one. You know, that's just its nature. And so, uh, yeah, so the, the view would be essentially that, uh, this is a story of the intellectuals and yeah. their rise and fall and, and that the impact that will be had on, uh, you know, our civilization. Well, I mean, you know, Ayn Rand would agree with that and that statement for sure. She was big on like intellectuals and their role in society. And she wrote a book called For the New Intellectual, which is, you know, what she was very popular with the masses and absolutely hated by intellectuals. Right. Which is in, I think, very telling in a certain way, um, about one, what she was doing, but also that, like, the idea of the intellectual establishment has some problems and they don't have the tools to be self-reflective about like the, the tools within the institution. So, you know, for instance, academics today, I think often may pay lip service, but they don't seem to recognize, for instance, that the left politically dominates the humanities, like, you know, nine, you know, 99 to a to one or whatever. Right. Or a hundred to a hundred. I mean, it's, it's you know it's insane whatever what you know it's it's a yeah. big number there, and there's there's and that has a huge impact on the culture i mean the people who write plays who write not sitcoms who go to yale and they're all you know very pretentious and they you know in, in hollywood for instance there's this idea of do one for them do one for us yeah. right and the one for us is the ones for the communist left people like it's not it's not like a great you know necessarily a great piece of art and then of course that trickles into everything that we see even in um, comic book series where you know it's the the idea that ayn rand hated about like sacrificing and things like that like now whether whether you think that's good or not or whatever it's a different discussion but what Ayn Rand agrees with there is that the problem is intellectuals, right? They're, and she actually gave them a lot of power. Uh, and I think she's right. And I think you're, I think you're saying the same thing that they have more power than people imagine. Like I grew up in um, a household with neither parents with a college. And, you know, my, my mom worked at AT&T for 32 years. My dad was a salesman and, you know, the, my, he went, grew up in the project. She grew up on a farm, like very just normal, middle, lower class. And the, the idea of academic intellectuals, even though for me, they kind of wanted me to go, there's a definite, definite disdain for their uselessness, right? Right. Like they're just (laughs) useless people walking around with books. Doesn't really do anything. Right. But it was in reading Ayn Rand for me personally that really opened my eyes and then meeting a whole bunch of intellectuals and really seeing the impact that, you know, just a children's book. Like I just see like a children's book, uh, one that was really popular when I was teaching for a long time, like the giving tree, 
Mm-hmm. Like, and it's it just all about sacrifice this and give up that and blah, blah. And I was like, Jesus Christ, like talk about propaganda. It's like, maybe it's the right philosophy. I don't know, but it's definitely, fa- you know, propagandizing. It's proselytizing something. Right. And that's very prevalent in, in so many different, you know, like give, you know, it's, it's good to give your stuff to your neighbor. It's like, you know, when like give your toys to your neighbors, like, Maybe, but sometimes, like, what if it's mine? Like, I don't know. Like, so anyway, the the idea of the intellectuals have a very powerful impact um, on all of us. So I definitely, and, and in that vein, the the Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, going back to that, definitely had an impact because it shaped the way everybody like thought about everything from then on. Like, they they talked about when they talked about government, they brought up an example of. When Odysseus goes to this place and look at how this society is structured, they didn't do it right, and this is what happened to them, right? And they went back to, you know, the the Iliad. Look, look at how this leader Agamemnon acts. If you're a leader, don't act like that, right? When he's right. very petulant in this sense, he's petty in this sense, and so I think um, I think that's very interesting for sure. Okay, well, Kirk, uh, you know, one thing uh, that is it is interesting to me when you think about the Iliad is Hector and Achilles. When I I don't know your reaction when I read that book even as a kid I was like Hector's the good guy and Achilles is kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so maybe it'd be good to talk about the internal structure cuz I know a lot of people who are listening may not be too familiar with the Iliad. Uh, but first off, you're correct. And Achilles, Hector is the sympathetic character on purpose. And this is one of the things that starts to happen in literature is that Homer is now consciously building sympathetic characters so that when he kills them, you feel bad, right? And I'm giving away spoilers, but if you don't know that Hector dies, I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and that there's a lot of pathos going on with the the trojans and that was actually i mean that that's one of the interesting things about the Iliad. Well, one of the many interesting things is that this is a story for greeks where the where they are kind of the bad guys right and so and you well let me put it this way that they're, they're not really the bad guys i mean i think who's the good guy and the bad guy and that's very difficult to say the Best way that I think about it is that it's actually a story of death and he picks this war and I think it's, it's a uh, great art that he picks a war where it's kind of ambiguous why they're all there. And in yeah. fact, there's a line that Muhammad Ali stole in the seventies. I don't know if he did it on purpose. And I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, where Achilles, when he surrender, like he gives up, he says, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to fight anymore. Like I'm done. And he um he says something like when when the the ambassadors Ajax, Odysseus, um the old guy Nestor, I think those are the three that come to to try to tell Achilles to plead with him to give him things from Agamemnon to try to get him to come back to fight because they're getting their asses whipped by the Trojans. They uh he says something like the Trojan, like why would I go kill Trojans when the Trojans ne- never done anything to me? 
right? And there's right. that line from Muhammad Ali is like, why would I go kill the Viet Cong? No Viet Cong ever called me the N word, right? He said, yeah, right, said it, right, right. <laughs> and so there, there's something about the Iliad where, um, you know, to kind of make your, your question complicated, uh, to overcomplicate what you asked and something going on in the Iliad where, Achilles is a character that gives up all the 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 things that his society is all about. And the the two terms that I learned are kleos and time, which roughly translates as um honor and glory. And glory for the Greeks was actually like like I think of it as um you know when you're playing a video game and you kill a character like a, a bad guy and you get a point like yeah. that that's kind of how i see it as is like you, you're collecting your health bar gets ha- bigger and bigger and bigger or whatever the more people you kill the more towns you sack the more stuff you get especially right. stuff right and slave girls was a bit i mean the whole crux of the story is a slave girl um briseis chrysaeus chrysaeus i was mixing them up because her father is like Briseis. Um, I think her name is... No, her, she's Briseis, I believe. Briseis is taken by Agamemnon. And, you right. know, he basically... From Achilles. And, you know, Agamemnon makes this argument that why is Achilles getting all this stuff? I'm the, the biggest, baddest leader. I should get it. Achilles says, I'm the one who fought the, the dudes, and I, like, got it. And, and, and actually, in that case, the men gave it to Achilles as the rightful person within their society who earned it to get this. And Agamemnon, you know, arbitrarily takes that away from him. And that's when Achilles starts to think, well, what the hell am I doing here? Right? Because the thing about Achilles is in the story, and this is why Achilles is very juxtaposed by Hector. Because Hector is the most human of the characters, Achilles is uh, of the mortals. Achilles is the most godlike. Like he's the son of a, he's the 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 son of a, a goddess, and um, you know, mortal man. And he can't be killed, really. I mean, as far as we know, and there's no there's no Achilles heel in the the Iliad, by the way. But there's still a sense of immortality, of intervention. But he is the only of all the mortal characters. He is the only one who has a choice to live or die, which is not a normal thing about going to war. Right? You don't go to war and think, you know, like, you know, everyone who goes to war, they might get cynical and think, I'm going to die, right, and morbid. Right. Like, but nobody knows one way or the other for sure. Achilles, right. Achilles has a choice, right? He can choose to live or he can, and live um, a whole life and nobody will remember him. Or he could choose to fight this war and know for sure he's going to die. And one of the interesting things about the two of them as a character and why Hector is often considered the good guy is because Hector has doubts. Achilles knows what's going to happen, which is a whole different perspective on things. And so Hector will often say things like, you'll see this almost in like one like stanza thing going on where he's like, you know, I'm going to fight Achilles. Maybe I could do this. I was like, oh, I'm going to die, dude. I'm fucking over. Like, And he goes back and forth in this kind of way. Obviously, I'm exaggerating. but So the simple answer is I think they're both the good guys, but Hector is um, more like us, and Achilles is something different. And 
by do and and there's a spectrum within the the story uh, with you know the, there's god there's and the gods aren't really called gods they're called the ageless ones the immortals they're they're sh- different than us only in the fact that they don't die that's really right. what changes that's different from them i mean they do have powers of course and they're very scary but um they're not like an omniscient omnipotent god so there's my very simple short answer <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's a very fascinating question because that is a critical question in the whole story is you know who's the good guy what's going on i don't think there's a good guy i think the whole thing is this is the story you know there's a book called the war that killed achilles and it's i think caroline kennedy or, or some i can't remember who wrote it some historian and it's about the idea that the idea behind the, the that Achilles is the best of the best of the best that this world has to offer. All war did was kill Achilles. That's all this war did. It accomplished nothing but to kill the best of men. So. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I think you're right that uh, Hector is uh, just more comprehensible to us. You know, we can sympathize with him more. Um, I uh, I don't know, like. I don't read a lot of scholarship. I sort of just read um, articles. I can't even think of a book. But uh, my understanding is, you know, Troy is located on the Bosphorus. Where's what's so the Bosphorus? The Bosphorus is the little strip of water and and land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea. Okay. So the Greeks and others had city states all along the Black Sea as well, mm-hmm. and so. The the Bosphorus is a giant is a tremendously important uh, trade route. You know, he who can, is controls the Bosphorus. You know, even today, you know, that's where Syria is, and you have Russia who wants to control the Bosphorus, and then we want to control the Bosphorus, and America too, um, because that's how the oil gets out. You know, from yeah. Black Sea, you know, to the rest of the world, and it's similar in that in that day and age. And so, you know, they they characterize or externalize the the cause of the war internal to the book. But you can imagine um, that, you know, you have a trade war happening. And then also the, um, I believe the Trojans, uh, they think that they spoke like Llewellyn. uh, I totally didn't pronounce that right. I'm sure. But anyway, that they essentially were part of of allies to the Hittites. Yeah. Because they found references to Troy uh, which I think was Luella or something like that in like Hittite tablets um, that they later found. And so you would have had what essentially is a vassal state of a giant empire. And then also around the time they have the recording of the attack of the sea peoples on Egypt and on the Hittite empire and even in the Levant. And, uh, you know, the sea peoples are not necessarily the Greeks, but, um, you know, just people, the boat people. They don't really still know exactly who they were. Um, but then the question is like, oh, well, where do you get these sea people? Well, it turns out at this time there were lots of like, you know, um, natural disasters happening. So it was like climate change and other things going on. And so you wound up with this movement of peoples uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's happening. And the Greeks are a part of it. And, uh, you know, Hector is, has modern motivations in that what he's defending. He has to defend his family. It has been the city. We identify with that. Mm-hmm. Um, for Achilles, I think, like, I could be wrong about this, but I believe what, the, from the story, Agamemnon took a priestess and he took a priestess. But Agamemnon took the wrong priestess because 
Um, yes, that's correct. I, right. So he had to he, give it up. He had to he give, had up his, give it up. It starts and with then, the plague. Yeah, right. And then he's like, well, he says, you know, that's I'm right. the leader, so I should get the next best one if yeah. this one was taken from me. But then that's Achilles correct. feels that if it's take if she is taken from him, then he loses honor. Uh, you know, so they're really at loggerheads on this point of honor. Uh, and, uh, and so then that to me, it sort of trivializes Achilles because it, 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 you're sort of just like, okay, well, listen, you know, I mean, from a practical, I guess, like modern standpoint, you're sort of like, listen, you're here. What is the point of you being here? You're never going to have a successful, you know, he's the king, you know, you can't really overthrow him. The whole reason that we're here, you know, is on his behalf. And, you know, for glory and other things. And, and, and also, Agamemnon, I mean, I don't know. He sounds like he's probably in the right, you know, in, in, the, in their world. You know, I don't know. But um, Achilles won't give it up, you know, because he sees, oh, well, they've shamed me. You know, I, have, I will have to endure some shame. And he's so prideful that he won't do it. You know, he just says, like, I'm not going to do it. And then he goes. But then only when his lover, uh, Patroclus, or cousin, whatever, is, uh, you know, is killed, then is he motivated uh, by revenge, you know, to kill Hector. And uh, the only sympathetic part, I suppose, for me is you have Achilles who, you know, when Priam comes to him, he he knows that his father is never going to see his body. You know, he knows he's going to die there and he knows it. So then he's like willing to give back. Hector's body. In that moment, he is this godlike, wise character. Like wisdom is supposed to be, you know, of things human and divine. So it's partially human and partially divine. And then so he is able to make that speech and that like gesture, which is bigger than anything Hector does, in a sense. You know, because Hector kind of like has to go out and fight. I mean, oh, what's he gonna do? Hide like a coward? He's yeah. not a coward, so he has to go. But you're right, Achilles doesn't have to go. Mm-hmm. You know, he could he can go back and be a wealthy king, you know, and live his whole normal human life, but he wanted something bigger. And that's there's definitely something within us, you know, I feel like that every day like is making that choice. Oh, how much do I just live a normal, happy life and be content with it? And how much do I need Am I driven by some unnamed thing within me that I need to do something great or big? And that's like Achilles has that because he has that partially immortal soul. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Well, this is, I think, what makes it art, what you're talking about here versus um, you know, like a historical recollection is or a historical biography or the, the story of the Trojan War. Right. Like what's. What you're talking about, so yeah, it starts off with like the plague, and and um, Agamemnon, like you said, that what what I guess I was trying to point out was that the choice he has, and why Achilles makes this choice to abandon the fighting, is yeah. that it's it's like there was this these rules that he was abiding by. And he right. was choosing to be in this fame or glory, get as much fame as you can, live forever. And then, you know, he started realizing, well, it's all arbitrary, right? Like, why would I do this? Like, why, why fight for some, like, it's not the same. So historically. Change the rules of the game. 
in the middle of the game. Yeah, exactly. What? And right. and I think what you were pointing out when you were starting to talk is that historically there was probably trade rules going on and that's what it was actually about. But within the Iliad, it's not explained why they're there for 10 years fighting exactly. It's right? Helen. Like, it's Helen you know? is the main, yeah, it's, it's, they're all <laughs> fighting for Helen, which is a pretty silly reason, even right. within the story. It's kind of silly. It's like, well, like even Helen's like, well, this is going off for me. This is too much. Like, and there, there's a lot of, so he is making that. He's saying like, I'm not going to fight for this. Just like Muhammad Ali, I think is a good example. Is he's like, I'm not going to fight the Vietnam War. What this, what's it for? Right? Like World War Two makes sense. You know, my dad fought Vietnam, so I don't really talk too much about this. But like, Vietnam doesn't make that much sense in the right. scope of things like i understand there was a reason for it the domino effect but it, you know one of the problems with it as a war is that it didn't make sense to a lot of people then and now right um and i think that's what achilles comes to and this is why the ambassador scene is so critical because it's a pivotal moment in the story in the structure of the story because you have three men that try to get achilles to come back to fight one of the things that happens is Odysseus gives the store, the hordes of wealth from Agamemnon. So Agamemnon wants to apologize and says, I was wrong. Here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you 20 golden tripods. I'm going to give you 30 horses. I'm going to give you 400 slave girls. I don't know what it was. I'm going to yeah. give you back Briseis and I promise you I've never touched it. Right. Right. And you know, all the things, everything like, that would basically make him as kingly as Agamemnon, right? Like it would make yeah. it would it's so much stuff it's ridiculous. And when he, they track, you know, go to Troy and sack it, he gets like the 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 biggest pile from everybody, right? And Achilles says no, right? And he gives reason, and this is when he says, you know, they never killed me. I don't need that stuff. I have plenty of my own stuff. I can go home, live as a good king, and be happy. Right. right, and he he gives like, and it's really interesting to read Achilles's and really think about what he says because he gives reasoned arguments. Um, Nestor, for instance, this is when Nestor or not Nestor, I don't remember who it was, but it's the Phoenix. That's who it is. Phoenix, who practically raised Achilles, so Phoenix, you know, says do it for um, the heritage. So you basically get the 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 fame. Uh, argument and then you get the honor argument right like and then he talks about hercules and all these great yep. gods or um heroes in the past you want to be like them and then uh ajax says do it for the men the men are dying don't let them die and that's the one that gets closest to convincing him right yeah but the it's important that achilles says no to all of them because the whole point of the story is that achilles has rejected his society's values value system Right. He says, this system is not right, and I'm not going to do it anymore. That's basically right. what he's saying. Then, as you pointed out, the critical moment happens when Patroclus is murdered or, or killed in war right. um, for overextending himself. And then, he, you know, uh, uh, of course, Achilles goes crazy. He goes and murders it and kills everybody and thinks like it's going to be the end of times. Like even the gods are starting to freak out. Yeah. And it's like a big deal. And then, um, yeah, so I, now, like what I like about that is, you know, if you remember the beginning of the poem, it begins, you know, sing to me of the rage of Achilles. This is a story about Achilles and his rage. 
Mm-hmm. And it's his rage, you know, his anger, his righteous. The, the word rage, I found out actually the wit, the word in Greek, I don't remember what it is, but it's only used in reference to gods, not to men. So it's a kind of rage only that like a, a righteous Zeus raining down ra- his rage on men, right? It's yep. only, you know, so there's that association between universal godlikeness. So, that's the arc of the the poem that I think is makes it art versus the history of you know there's this this trade war which is interesting and I think it's worth talking about like where's the um, where's the art where's the history of it how does it how does it play into the the story itself but yeah no totally uh, well look it's 100 percent not a historical uh, story um, I mean right because like why on earth would you tell it that way. You know, you, I think this is interesting, like even with, uh, you know, going back to the Odyssey, it's like, okay, we're not hearing the beginning. We're not hearing the end. (laughs) We're hearing one episode of a major conflict that lasted 10 years. That's pretty much about one guy, you know, that doesn't even solve the war, you know, and then, um, you know, it's just a weird thing in in some senses, you know, right. And then, uh, with it, with, with, with Odysseus, it's true that, you know, he's already and of course, there are also ep- the other epics that we've lost, yeah. you know, so there is the epic that was the Trojan War. And there was like, you know, an epic of them coming home, you know, and that being, was after Homer. Um, Yeah, I don't I don't know that they even know, like, you know, who how they were composed or when I, I think they were just oh, yeah, it just, was known that these were circulating mythological stories, you know, uh, you know, um, and certainly perhaps they were not as great. You know, um, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, with, but with, with Odysseus, I feel like it kind of makes sense, right? Like, oh, we're telling a story, uh, so we're going to 100% cut to the chase. This is like the last year. <laughs> you know, I'm going through nine years of him hanging out with seriously, yeah. you know, it's like, this is the last year, you know, mm-hmm. and then you have his son who's going and visiting Nestor, who's then giving him advice at Pylos mm-hmm. about his father, you know, so you're getting some flashback. Iliad, no flashbacks. Mm-hmm. You know, um, only flashbacks in the Odyssey. So you're getting, uh, you know, you're getting this piece. Then you're seeing home, you know, which is like essentially establishing like our stakes, you know. Um, then we see Odysseus overcoming various trials to then, you know, have this love, you know, unending love story where he comes back and, uh, you know, uh, takes over and kills the bad guys. Uh, and is uh, with, uh, you know, is with Penelope. But, the Iliad is is a uh, it's different, and so I think like to me the the trade war, Bronze Age collapse, you know, like sea peoples, all those kind of things, really gets into this deal of about how art is a flowering of culture, but also a reflection of that culture. It doesn't come out of nowhere, right? Yes, like it, it flowering of culture. Okay. Yeah, so in as much as the artist is doing his art it, or her art, it's a reflection of like what's happening in your conscious mind uh, or culturally even um, at the time. And so when we look at these civilizations and their art and their thought and you're comparing contrasting like the Egyptians and the Greeks, you know, we can sort of say, well, the Greek consciousness was different than the Egyptian consciousness. Yeah, but th- so the question is why? Well, why? I think is uh is is developmental. You know, the uh So but how do they develop like why would they develop so differently if they're both humans? 
Um, well, I think like the uh, the Egyptians are uh, was it were a Bronze Age society, like the Hittites. You know, they had a great giant war, um, and the Egyptians held off the Sea Peoples. Um, there was like that's how they sort of know that they call them Sea People because in the hieroglyphics, you know, Ramses II like barely beat them, mm-hmm. um, but they destroyed the Hittite Empire shortly thereafter, collapsed, and uh, and, and so what James's theory? I don't know why exactly, but I, I would say there's probably like. Three things. One, the written word destroyed them. The written word unmade the Bronze Age societies because the Bronze Age were super top down. You know, so you have a massive society, very inflexible rules, super top down, very vulnerable to natural disasters, all different kinds of things. And uh, they're ruled by an elite class, you know, that, uh, you know, they use chariots for Mm -hmm. warfare. You know, and then hero battles. You know, it's like, well, why does Hector have to go down and fight Achilles himself? He could just stay up there and Achilles has to kill all the people. You know, they had hero battles yeah. in chariots. And so the, the. Well, that, that's a story though. That's not real life. Oh yeah, but no, no, no. In real life, they did have chariot battles like that. Well, they had then, chariots, yeah. But... Even in the Greeks, they would have it where, you know, the leader would go out and fight in a parlay, you know, for the, you know, without the phalanxes, uh, fighting. As I understand it. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely a census where like the best fighters would go at each other. David Goliath, you know, it's all, it's all through where they have these instances. And so, um, yeah, but then what happens is there's sort of like a total collapse of these societies. And, uh, and, you know, so you have the societies collapsing, um, new forms taking place because like then what happens? The polis, mm-hmm. you know, like the city state, you yeah. know, and the different forms of government. You know, that are de- very different from the Hittite and the Egyptian, you know, top down centrally controlled, um, you know, governments. And uh, then you have, um, you know, with a written word, you then have um, ph- philosophy and thought and reflection, which is also then leads to a cultural flowering. But the philosophy, thought and reflection couldn't have come about without that written word step um, and then probably without more of these small city state type structures as opposed to giant, aggregate, massive empires that didn't really have any reason to change. And so I I think that consciousness was evolving, and that's why they they could then view themselves differently in the way the statues that you described. They could view a single man. They could think about it. You know, they could view movement, an abstract concept, because they could think about it. You know, whereas I feel like those other artists, as a reflection of their time and their civilization, their language, that state, they couldn't even think about it. So do you what do you think of um, like Carlyle's view of history? Do you know much about him? The, I don't, the I don't great, know, the I don't great, know much about Carlyle. I know somewhat of it. It's a uh, great my, man. Yeah, uh, I do think, though, he is guilty of what you're talking about earlier, which is a certain like elitist view. Yeah, well, the reason I ask that is because, like, what you're saying is, you know, one thing that I I would disagree with personally, and I'm curious your thoughts because I would come more in the the Carlisle view of this is that there's um there's a strain of philosophy of history, maybe it comes from this guy you're talking about, I don't even realize it, that that um brings up or that that has it where it's historical forces that are causing these things, right? Like one culture does this, 
Whereas for me, I th- take it as it was caused by the the creation of a great mind, like or the the creation from a great mind. So those things happened because of Homer, not because of some economic forces or some they were geographically here, but it's because <clears throat> someone invented it and then their consciousness changed. Right. So, right, but- so that's more my like my perspective is that end of like the reason it happened you know, in Greece was because they had, I mean, I do think there are geographical influences. So I'm not saying that it's, it's just magic. Like just one guy come up, comes up with it. I'm saying, I think that, you know, I, I'm a, an advocate of the great man theory that there is great men who create something that structurally changes everything after it. Yeah. Um, okay. Great man theory. Yeah. Well, see, I guess my, I don't think there like was a Homer. There were many Homers and they basically would, there were scribes across like, you know, 800 or like 400 years, uh, where they told this tale. And if there was a Homer, he was kind of like, uh, we have the telling of, you know, I don't know, Romeo and Juliet, you know, it was already, or there was already a Romeo and Juliet story, the, you know, star-crossed lovers from Italy that then Shakespeare does his version of it. You know, now we see it in like remakes where it's like, oh, here's the next version of this thing and the next version of this thing. And here's Othello, you know, in space. And so um, he took material. If there was a, such a character, he took material that had been brought across hundreds yes. of years. Well, I agree with that. Together. That I agree and with. Words even, you know, the wine dark sea, you know, yes. like because that's a metaphor. You know, so he's borrowing all that and then putting it together into a thing, if there even was a one person who did that. Um, and so I when I think about great man uh, view of history, it's often like put positive in opposition to like these disembodied forces um, or something of that nature, like ideological forces. But I, my view is sort of like both, you know, like I think that. So what's one's more fundamental now? Uh, I don't know that there's really like a more fundamental one to me. I mean, I think that at certain times, certain people are born into a moment that happens to be significant. And what they do or think in that moment can be more or less significant for change. Um, However, uh, you know, when they're born into the moment, there's a lot of things that – kind of make them do what they do you know well, so so like, do you think if newton didn't come up with his theories uh you know of the movements of the planets and the principia do you think someone else would have just done it 100 percent. okay see i don't think that i don't think i think it might have happened but it might have taken hundreds of years or may well, you may still be waiting like i think that there's something unique about him choosing in his mind i don't think it just happens well, I, I guess like, yeah, it's kind of like this free will determinism thing, right? Like you tend to, <laughs> oh, well, there is, that's, that's a crux of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You say like, oh, well, it just happened. Well, I, I'm not contest. I'm not contending that it just happened. <laughs> you know, he did it, but he only could have done it at that moment. You know, just like his thing. He says he stood on the shoulders of giants. So if Euclid had not worked out conceptual math and geometry yeah. and, and that language didn't exist, then he, Newton, could never have conceived of what he did. Um, but see, like, I really, the reason I think I agree that, with that. I agree is with that. the reason I think, like, I do believe in great man theory, but here's a good example. So, like, we're going to go to Mars. Like, in my opinion, 
you know, just like when I sort of look at man, you know, like uh, we, like you and me, are gonna go to Mars. You ready? Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> probably, but probably not you, me. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It seems cool. It seems cool, but it's like I, I like Earth. I'm down here, man. Yeah, I don't want to be in no spaceship. To me, humans are destined to go to Mars and to okay. terraform. I agree with and that. Venus, and then go to other places. Yeah. So if there were other planets out there, and there were other civilizations. They would have their own Newton. Like, in other words, if they got to be like, you know, like it's Star Trek and there's like, you know, the Klingons and whatever, yeah. someone in their civilization must have figured okay, out. Yeah, to get to that point. Gravity. For sure. You know? For sure. To get to that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it doesn't like in any way take away from like the accomplishments of Newton mm-hmm. um, to just say, oh, well, somebody else would have done it because – you know, he did it when he did, mm-hmm. and he did it how he did. It could have been come about as multiple people, and then there's war, and then we never hear about it, and then like Copernicus, you know, and then, you know, or there's like a authority that shuts him down. So it was a very heroic and uh, inspired and important that he did it, and when he did it, and how he did it. So he's definitely a hero. But the Klingon Newton, is also a hero. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because, because the Klingons may have never become a spacefaring race, right? They may have just collapsed and, you know, destroyed themselves. And so the great men or and women prevent us from destroying ourselves and help us advance. But we must advance. There must have been a Darwin. Darwin must have figured out where we come well, from. Okay, so that's where I don't agree. So I do agree with a lot with most of what you just said that Newton had to come at a certain point where there were certain people available for him to read and build upon and integrate from. There had to be, you know, a Bahi who did certain measurements of the skies and the movements of planets and then he could, you know, work in uh, a Copernican universe. Like there there had to be certain things that happened um, or he would have had to be that person at, you know, he would have had to do that right. work and it would have taken his lifetime to do those measurements. And then another person might have had to integrate all that stuff. So that, that I agree with. Now, the last part you said, I don't necessarily agree with, like the idea that we had to progress. That I don't agree with because oh. there's that, that's the whole dark age. We've had more than one dark ages. I think that. And also, we don't know what we've missed and what we haven't done. Like, we don't know what could have been. Um, we, so we don't, we don't really know that, right? So I, I think he hasn't, um, you know, his, what he did changed the world and the way we look at the world and our minds forever. Now, he's building on people and there's a tradition. And I think if you go back, like, the great change was in Petrarch. Who started? Who got us out of religious thinking? Petrarch, the poet. Yeah, he got us out of religious thinking and a little bit more secular. He got us, you know, looking at birds and bees and things like that. So that—that's what I would disagree with. Is the idea that it had to progress? I think he, if Newton would have, like, if we go back in time and someone shot Newton in the head, right, like, like at birth, um, I don't, I, I think we could have gone hundreds of years with nothing progressing. And we could have been, yep. we could still be stagnant like that until someone comes up with something new and great. Right. I think like um you know, part of it is just the parlance which this 
these things are governed in, uh, I think that like makes us like fall off the edge of the cliff one side or the other, um, or the mountain peak. Uh, and that's, uh, and that's that like, I, I a hundred percent think the great man theory is, uh, is correct and right. Um, you know, however, I also think that the historical forces is also right and that they just work together in some way. Um, well, and, so I, I, again, I agree with that for the most yeah, part. I, but yeah. I think the great, what I'm saying is individual, cause I, I'm a big advocate of free will. So yeah. individual is what's first and the individual creating that and choosing to create that. That's what comes first. But when you create, you create in an environment, like you said. Yeah. I think that the day, I think the deal is, uh, at least I think the deal, the, I think we're, I think part of where the distinction comes from is the level at which you're looking. So like, let's say like, you know, we're in a video game and it's like, we're on the level of like Sim city, you know, we're walking on the street and then here's Newton doing, you know, Newtonian physics in one of the places. Right. Well, then we macro out, you know, we're looking at London, you know, then we macro out and we're looking at earth. Well, if you're an alien and you're looking at London, you would sort of think to yourself, like, okay, they have this gravity, there's this many people. If this city survives, we can predict that they will have big, tall, vertical skyscrapers, that they will use elevators. Um, they will have some means of automated transport because they're two-legged creatures. And, uh, this, and so you can sort of see all that stuff. But then I think the mistake is – you sort of look at it from earth view or overhead view and you confuse like the action with the perspective. Like, so then you adopt a view of like, well, it doesn't matter what one man does. We're considering the whole planet. And then you start thinking that things are a given that it's like Sim city and London's just going to grow no matter what. Right. Um, but you got to realize you're looking at it from a perspective that doesn't involve any action because there's no actors there. Then when you go into the perspective of the individual and the local, then you're suddenly seeing like, uh, you know, maybe it's just like, it's like physics, like where it's at a grand scale, it looks like nothing's happening. <laughs> you know, the things are racing apart, but they're basically to us, the stars are not moving, even though they're moving at tremendous speed, yeah. you know, uh, and the world makes sense. There's gravity, there's this, these rules. But then when you get into quantum mechanics, um, it's suddenly like way weirder, you know, and it's just, it starts, you start, it's, it's real, but it's not intuitive. You know, it's not intuitive for us in the same way. Like, you know, capitalism is seemingly not intuitive to our hunter gatherer brains. We have to understand and we had to discover it. <laughs> and yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I think like that's, that's probably maybe like where the, the great man versus historical forces, uh, you know, things, there's a tension. So which is, is the right perspective then? The level. Huh? Which level is the right one to look at history from? Um, I think both are right. I think both can you can get insight from both of them. I think when you're talking about what should governments do and what should people do, individual, because that's the only place where action can happen. Got but it. if you're taking it, if you're a disinterested party and you're like you know you know you don't have a dog in the fight about what should happen, then you can look at it from the higher perspective in an all in an academic sense. You know, but if you're talking about like decisions, you do the same thing with your own life, right? Like if you could look out of your body and go up and see yourself, 
Yeah. You know, like doing, you would maybe be like, oh, well, he's probably going to do this and he's probably going to do that. <laughs> you know, with some level, you would have some accuracy and you would just be wrong maybe on the margins. But, uh, but for you as an individual being in there, these decisions are momentous. And I think it's, uh, it would probably follow along something like, you know, how there's like that curve of like the possibility. So you have two choices here, but whichever one you pick, one will take you here and one will take you here. And this is a very, like, you know, for the, this, are, we, are they seeing this or hearing it? Most people are going to hear it. Okay. Yeah. So if you make your hand into a triangle and you start at the crux where your finger, your index finger meets your thumb, that's the, that's one corner of the triangle. And then, you know, and then the, your big, your, your middle finger and your thumb are, uh, you know, they're relatively far apart. So that's kind of like the hypotenuse. And so what you do is if you start right where your index finger is together and you look at, you look at, this is a decision matrix and you got to pick a choice. And if you pick one choice, you're not very far apart from your index finger and your thumb because that's where they meet, right? But over time, that decision that you made could end you either at the end of your thumb or at the top of your index finger. And that is a very big difference of possibilities, difference in possibilities. And so I think when you're looking at a human life or a civilization, you know, you could have the, the academic sense of hubris that because you can see this little choice here, that you know what's going to happen out on the end of the paradigm. And that is a hundred percent hubris because you don't know that. And that's why individuals have to be trusted to make all those decisions and it sort of be experiment. And then, uh, and then, so there's no way to like determine that. Uh, even though that's what academics do, they try to look at it from a determinist standpoint for sure. That's a very prevalent thing. Cause then you get to look at people as things, what makes them way easier to deal with, right? Yeah. If they're things. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a, no, I would agree a hundred percent. That's a big problem in the humanities is, but what I, I guess what I was trying to get at is that when I asked what is the proper perspective is that the dominant perspective is in, in academia, but I think even in general, when we're looking at these issues, is that high level perspective you were talking about, which, so that, I mean, I see that as kind of like an anthropology, but it's like, to me, it just seems like that perspective is what's wrong with the humanities today. Right. Cause they get it in, it invades the other areas, you know, yeah. it's it, it well, economics, arts, yeah, literature, anthropology, yeah, all those things. Like every single field of humanities, it, it affects it by having that. I mean, that that was Marx's view essentially, right? Uh, like of history, of like the historical forces, and he got that I think from Heidegger, who got it from Hegel, who got it from Kant, basically. Yeah, and, um, yeah, it went Kant, Hegel. Though Hegel's very different. I think he, he got it from Hegel, and then Heidegger is, is post-Marx, I believe. Uh, yeah, 100%. Okay. Uh, so it's he, Kant, uh, Hegel, Marx. But Marx actually, Marx actually charts it. He literally says, the purpose is not to understand history, yeah, you're, to change it. Yeah. You know, and so like where you have a Vikian or even like a Hegelian, I'd say, is they're not concerned with changing history. They're studying it. And they're trying to look at these broad trends and make theories of man. But Marx says, well, that's all good. But the point is that we use this in the real world. And that is, I think, like where the hijacking of the perspective comes in. Yeah. And it's like Jane Goodall left the trees 
went out there with the apes and started saying to us, started speaking to them and telling them, you need to do this. And what you did was wrong. And this whole thing needs some social justice. You know, yeah. it's just, you can't you go in, you know, if you're the observer in that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, I think we definitely agree on the choice issue that there's some, you know, it's impossible from an outside perspective you gave the example of the triangle of choice and, and what it will act out over time that it's difficult to see because you can look at, you can pinpoint, here's where the choice begins. You know, they made a choice to have a family. So you're assuming that this is where they're going to go. They're going to have two cars, you know, uh, they're going to have a second child. They're going to save money for, like you're going to assume stuff like that. But really, he's been cheating on his wife. They're swingers, so she's okay with it. The kids are fine, even though their parents are swingers. Like, so there's a whole, like, mil- like a million different choices or, or, uh, ends that they can meet down right. the line that you can't predict. I think where you and I would differ is I say the reason, like, you give that example is the reason why the humanities is wrong and, and why it should be individual rather than looking at the perspective of the masses, if I'm understanding correctly. And my difference would be, I, I say it's that because of the essence, the nature of free will, like that you shouldn't have that perspective because people can have the power to choose at any moment to do something different. So you can't predict what anyone's or any group of people are going to do because everyone has free will. Right? Well, that's I mean- my perspective. I mean, yeah, I mean, and in that way, we're sort of treating free will as almost this inviolate um, thing that's either a self-evident proposition or whatever. And I think that I, I, I think that's fine. I think that you don't even have to do that, though. We could simply say the number of possibilities is so infinitely large, it cannot be predicted. And second, in a learning system where the entity that has all these choices can choose to reflect or not reflect, then like quadruples the amount of possibilities. And so it it would be utter or not quadruples, but just infinitely increases. And so the, uh, the ability of, uh, one person or even like a group of people to calculate that and then predict what's going to happen is, uh, you know, is impossible, mm-hmm. you know, number one. Um, and uh, number two, so you shouldn't do it, right? So it's impossible. So you shouldn't do it, yeah. uh, uh, you know, and then, and then certainly use those conclusions to tell people how they should live. You know, you shouldn't do it. Uh, but then also, yes, like each person has the ability to reflect, which is to me, like that's what free will is, you know, reflect upon who you are, gain an understanding of yourself, and then that chooses, that can help change the decisions that you make in the future. And, uh, uh, and so people can do more or less of that, you know? And so in, uh, you know, with the poem, the kind of thinking that you're talking about, that's like, are people going to listen to, you know, the podcast and then read the poem and then reflect upon the meaning or are they not going to, you know, and, uh, hopefully they will. Well, yeah, I give the analogy of like running on a treadmill or lifting weights, like nobody can do it for you. I could teach you how to do it. You could read a book about it. You could watch movies about it. You could watch, you know, programs on YouTube on how to lift weights. But at the end of the day, you got to do it. Right. It's the only way. So what I hope my podcast does is help to unlock 
Because that's what you can't, like I read this once and I liked it. You can't teach poetry. At best, you can help people understand how to go out and read it on their own and, you know, and enjoy it and appreciate it and understand it really on their own so that they do the heavy lifting because you have to do the heavy lifting on your own. So in my podcast, I often, you know, I'll, I'll often do an introduction, trying to intrigue people, talk about it, talk about it conceptually, talk about it in real life terms, you know, and then I'll read the poem and then I'll do usually what I call a converse with verse, which is where I do an analysis of it, where I'm doing the work for you. But what I hope is that people model that and do it on their own. Right. That's my, that's my whole purpose because I've already done the work for you. Now you can, you know, you can go out and say the things that I said about the poem, make yourself look smart. But <laughs> the problem is that you now have, you know, now you have my voice in your head. Just like when I'm, you know, talking about Time and Cleos. Um, yeah. Time, when I said that earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Honor. That was from a lecture on a great book, a great courses series on the Iliad that I really like. Um, I think her name was Elizabeth Van Diver, I believe. It's a great series on the Iliad. I loved it. Where she taught me that. And I have her voice in my head. This is why the whole voices thing earlier was really weird. It's like, I have voices in my head all the time. So am I yeah. fucking crazy or what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and, but now what I'm trying to do is integrate it for myself by talking about it with other people, by, you know, applying it when I read the Iliad for myself, write essays about it. This is the most important reason why you should write, 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 write. This is like Jordan Peterson says this. I don't know if you listen to him much, but where he talks about it's important to, you know, he has a writing program, for instance, through uh, one of his things that he does, like mm-hmm. understandmyself.com, I think. And there's like a writing, a lot of writing that one of them has you do one of the programs or several of them. Mm -hmm. And that's because that's when you're integrating what you've heard and the voices in your head to something external to that so that you can evaluate it and make it your own. And that to me is what, right. You know, big part of writing is. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good kind of closer thing. uh, So to tell off what you said, I think I'm going to butcher this, but Aristotle had a quote (laughs) where he said, uh, to be a master of metaphor is surely a mark of genius because it is the one thing that cannot be taught. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, even if it, it's not perfect, it's definitely true. I yeah. Think, like, so when you talk about poetry and unpacking like metaphorical meaning, it's yeah. really not something that can be taught. You know, for example, you're just like, I can't break this down to you. I'll just do it. And then you can imitate me. You know, yeah. like imitation, learn by doing, learn by imitation. It's not, That's the idea it's not it. a conceptual yeah. thing. It's something like felt and human. Yeah. And, uh, then you simply must do it like the lifting of the weights and the experience of doing it, like the experience of lifting weights over time and experiencing a transformation is something that you can't communicate to someone. They have to experience that. And so, uh, you know, what we are doing with the, uh, I think like in focusing on, on poems and metaphorical truth is, uh, is, you know, you know, if those who would imitate it can then experience the, you know, the fun and euphoria and satisfaction and self understanding and wisdom that comes with lifting those mental weights. There you go. That's perfect. Great way to end it, man. 
Thank you so much, Patrick, for being on. Um, we'll have to have you on again. We'll talk about uh, some other Greek tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right. You have a good one. Yeah, you Thank too, you, brother. Thank you. Bye.